Well, the wisdom of God is our message, and the Bible talks about wisdom in a lot of different places. The Greek word is Sophia. The Greeks had a real love for wisdom, but their love for wisdom really was about worldly wisdom. And there is a distinction between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. If you skip ahead in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 1, you'll notice the distinction. For since, 1 Corinthians 1.21, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Bible students, notice that there's a difference between the wisdom of God and the world's wisdom. This is the distinction that we want to point out as we move into a section that's really going to give us the difference between the two types of wisdom. There is a wisdom of the world, and in the Greek culture, uh, I think any of you who studied some world history know that you, know, you had Plato and Socrates and this kind of thing. And there was a lot of uh, philosophies that were coming down the pike in the Greek world. And the Greek world was dominant, really, at this moment of history. And then moving into, actually, the, the Romans became dominant. But it was still Greek culture that largely dominated the world. Our Bibles are written in Koine Greek in the New Testament for a reason. And so what we have before us is we have two different types of wisdom and there's really only two different types and really only two different categories. However, for the Greeks, they had some, something like 50 different schools of philosophical thought. And in our day, there's a lot of different philosophies that come into the world of business, into the university system. In fact, I think a lot of uh, you know, people who are on the conservative side are saying that the secular university is becoming one of the most dangerous places in the world for our up-and-coming students because it becomes a laboratory for humanism, for uh, anti-supernaturalism, to marginalize the Bible, to mock those who would hold to a creation viewpoint, for example. Our students who are going into secular universities get mocked for believing in a creator when the overwhelming evidence points there. Just look at your body, look at the human eye, look at your brain, look at DNA, look at the, the planets and the way that they fit together and the exact right distances. Look at, look at sea life. There's so many things that we can talk about. There is an awesome designer who made all of this. This is not the consequence of an accidental, mindless, purposeless chance explosion eons ago. So, but this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with different types of philosophies in the world. And we're asking the question, and I think it's the most fundamental question of all, whose wisdom ultimately will you embrace? In the Jewish mind, wisdom had the idea of a practical living out of what you believe. It actually has the idea of one who is skillful in living their life. The book of Proverbs, for example, is filled with all kinds of practical wisdom. But it's not just in the book of Proverbs. It's everywhere in the Bible. And if you're going to be a wise person, the Bible calls you to do things God's way, to know who God is, to know his will and his ways, and then to carry it out. It is a God orientation that the Bible calls for. It is to align your life with heaven's values. Wisdom is above all a practical oriented virtue, says one writer, that gives direction for the life of the godly person. But we all would agree that probably one of the biggest disconnects in the modern church, and I, and I would say it's been true for 2,000 years now, is the difference between knowing something and actually doing something. 
Now that's the practical side of wisdom, and we talked about some of that in the book of James. But in this short section that we're going to study this morning, the wisdom that's placed before us is really not about practical wisdom per se. That could flow out of this. But this is about salvation wisdom. This is what are you going to believe about your life and your destiny. In Psalm 90, the only psalm that Moses wrote that we know of, Moses said to God, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Moses tied the brevity of life into navigating life in a wise way, but especially when it comes to your eternal destiny. If you want to be called a wise person, you need to make sure you know how you get saved. Some people deny that they even need to be saved. There are people who are denying that sin is a problem. I'm not a sinner. I don't want to be categorized that way. But you are a sinner. <laughs> this is the, these are the facts. And I think if we just look at the Ten Commandments, we all know that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We have a sin issue, a sin problem. And sin is 100% deadly 100% of the time. In fact, the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so with all the problems in the world, the Bible says the root of all the problems is sin. Now sin expresses itself in different ways. But the root of our problems is sin. And so... One writer put it this way, we have enough teachers, amen? We've had teachers come down through the centuries. If you are a book person, you can read books until the cows come home and the cows' children and grandchildren come home. There's books upon books upon books upon books. And one writer put it this way, we don't need another teacher. We need a redeemer. Do you agree? We need a redeemer. And for 2,000 years, if you could just go back to the time of Jesus Christ and ask yourself, as world history has unfolded and we've had technological advances and, you know, maybe we could think, oh, we've gotten smarter in this way and that way. Let me ask you, has, have those advances, just go back a millennia or two millennia, 2,000 years, have those advances, whatever they may be, whatever fields they may be, helped us solve the most fundamental questions of humanity? No, in fact, I would say in some ways we've become worse. We've become more skillful at executing our sin. More, more advanced in the way we fight wars, for example. Or the ways that we carry out our immoral desires. And so the advancements that we would hope in science and other places that might carry off the answers to humans' basic problems are just not there. Because here's the problem. We have a sin problem, and we need a Savior. And the wisdom of God says, look, I know what the problem is, and I'm sending you a solution. The one in whom lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end. And if you begin to study his sermons and study his life and study the scriptures, you will become wise. Now, the opposite of the wise person in Scripture is the fool. The fool in the Bible is not someone devoid of mental acumen, someone who's just dumb. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the fool. 
But the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God, Psalm 14, 1. If you continue to read in Psalm 14, the reason that he has that mantra that he's embraced, there's no God, is because he wants to live immorally. He's become corrupt in his way of living. He doesn't want to be under the law of God or under the dictates of God. So he dismisses God so that he can live the way, she can live the way they want to. This is the wisdom of the world. Look at Corinth. I described Corinth to you as an ancient Las Vegas. Everything that could be considered corrupt was there. And what was happening is though the Corinthian church, young in the Lord, had been saved and the church had been planted about five years before this letter was written, the Apostle Paul got a report from Chloe's people that the church was a disaster. They had factions going. They were taking the Corinthian ways into the church rather than bringing the church's wisdom to Corinth. Corinth's, Corinth's wisdom or the world's wisdom was permeating the church. And they were beginning to re-embrace all the things that they had been saved from. The Apostle Paul, throughout this letter, is going to remind them again and again what's most important in God's eyes. The ultimate wisdom is the wisdom of God. One writer says, Mary Bell, a consultant to many high-level executives, says that achievement is the alcohol of our time. She goes on to say that the more you achieve, the more you feel dynamite. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. When you complete a project, you feel, a, you feel dynamite. Or when you start something new and you're able to show your visionary entrepreneurial skills. And you can be somebody who can start something from nothing. Something that is so highly praised in our culture. That's a feeling of euphoria. And of course, of your self-esteem. The way you evaluate and form your identity is on the line here. Remember? that we're so concerned about protecting our status and the reason why we engage in status anxiety is for the very reason that somebody might actually find out that I might be a fraud. So our self-esteem is on the line because we've been gathering our self-worth externally, living out your life dependent upon the judgments of the people outside of you. She went on to say, an achievement addict is no different than any other kind of addict. Why the quote Pastor Michael simply this, that the Corinthian people believed that wisdom in the worldly sense could help you achieve, give you status, give you power. And it is no different today. The categories or the, the words may change a little bit, but the emphasis is still the same. I get my identity from what people think about me, who I run with, what company I work for, what I drive, what I wear, what, you know, what I invest in, you name it, it's there. This is the same wisdom, in quotes, that's been around for a couple thousand years. And so here's what Paul says about his mission. When he came into Corinth, Here's what he was called to do. Skip back for a moment in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's the good news of Christ. Not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. The NIV said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom. That's not in the Sophia of Lagos lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, look, you may be lining up behind these teachers. You may say you're of Apollos. You may say you're of Paul. You're of Peter. You're of Jesus. But I have news for you. 
All of these teachers preach the same gospel. The wisdom of God. That's what you need. Walter Martin used to say, look, as we stand up as pastors, we don't need to impress people with our vocabulary. Sometimes I know we throw out words and people say, what? Predesta who? Sanctify what? <laughs> but here's the deal. Paul came into Corinth with simplicity, but with power. If you remove the cross from the centerpiece of modern day preaching, you rob the message of its power. Billy Graham, who preached to so many thousands of people, would again and again go back to the cross. Why? Because that's where the power is. The cross is the message of God's love and justice on display. But it gets mocked. There's an ancient graffito uh, uh, drawing, if you will, that has the body of a man with the head of a donkey. And a, a Greek you know, mind of the past is mocking the worshiper who worships a crucified uh, Messiah. They, they mock it. Have, have you heard it in our day and age? You'll, you'll maybe flip on a comedian or you'll, you'll watch a TV show and there it goes. They go down the mock trail. They want to mock Christianity. They mock the cross. They mock people who believe. Although the country they live in was founded on biblical principles. So here's where we are today. And it's no different from where the Corinthian congregation was in their day. The word of the cross. See, see the word word there in verse 18? That's, that's the lagos or the message of the cross as it's uh, translated in some versions. Is to those who are perishing, what is it? It's foolishness. Now remember how we've talked about the difference between the wise person and the fool? Here, the person that is perishing has categorized the cross as foolishness. That's, they might say, ridiculous. How could a man, have you heard this before, dying on a cross 2,000 years ago have any bearing on my life today? And so they marginalize the cross, they mock the cross, and it may be that in the Corinthian congregation, since the Corinthian culture was repermeating itself into the church, that the people were tiring of the message of the cross. Maybe they were saying, we want to get back into some cool rhetoric. We want to get back into, maybe the, the centerpiece of the preaching on Sunday morning should be a story or an anecdote or something, you know, maybe, maybe kind of a, something that's going on in the headlines. But, but let's, let's get over that Bible stuff. Years ago, I had a friend who was talking to a lady. She was attending a certain fellowship, which will remain unnamed. And uh, she was pontificating about what she liked about it. I, I like this. I like that. I like this. And my friend said, well, do they teach the Bible? And the woman's response was, no, I don't want to go somewhere and listen to the Bible for 45 minutes. <laughs> my friend was a bit taken back by that. So what, what is it that you want to do in church? Well, we, we know some of the answers, right? We want to be entertained. We, we'd like to kind of keep it brief so we can get on with the rest of our normal day. But see, that's not who the church is. But that is the philosophy of many in our world. The word of the cross, the message of the cross is to those who are, would you note it, perishing. The word perishing is a strong word. 
It's apolumi in the Greek, and it means to be destroyed fully. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. What's at stake here? Who said that? Jesus. God so loved the world that he said he gave his son. That's why I'm here, Jesus might say. I'm here on a rescue mission. And the world and the people of, you know, Paul's day could say, ah, that's ridiculous. But for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He is the power of God. To those who are perishing, it's foolishness. It's the Greek word moria, where we get moronic. It's silliness. It's absurdity. Phillips has it as nonsense. But to us who are being saved, sozo, the Greek word, it's the power of God. You see, when I talk about my faith, I say I'm saved. Saved from what, you might ask? Think about it. What are you saved from? Judgment. Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, was taking the wrath of God in your place. Sometimes I've had the chance to describe the gospel and explain it, and there have been people who have been around religious things for quite some time, and they say, I've never heard it put that way, that Jesus was taking the wrath of God, taking my shame and my punishment at the cross. I never got that before. That is part of the message. But what held him to the cross, and you've heard this before, is not nails, it's love. It's God's love. On display, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to what? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile or to the Greek. The gospel, please hear this, is the dunamis power of God. If you don't preach the gospel, then you take away the power. So you could be impressed with flowery speech or rhetoric. You can hear eloquent speeches and great stories told. But if the cross or the gospel of Jesus Christ is not preached, it will be void of power. And here's my concern in our day. I'm not sure we trust that the message has power. But it does. And that's what Paul says. Paul was educated. He was strong. Yet he said, this is what I preach. What polar opposites we have here from those who say the message is moronic to those who say the message is salvific. <laughs> Could you be any more apart? Some people say that's foolish. And some people say that saves me. And here's the real question Who's right? Can I, can I as a person, no matter what time I've lived in history in the last 2,000 years, just simply dismiss that cross, dismiss Christ and say, eh, I don't care. I'm not even going to think about it. You can try. But to those who don't embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says they're going to perish. What does that mean to perish? It means that you're going to have to take the judgment that Jesus took at the cross because you don't want his payment for you. Nah, don't want it. 
Okay. Then you know where you get to go? You get to go and face the God of Sinai. <laughs> Who the Bible describes as being a consuming fire, so radical when he descended upon that mountain that he said, if people cross the boundaries or they do the wrong thing, they're going to die on the spot. No one can see me and live. That's how holy he is. He spoke this universe into existence. He designed your eye, your circulatory system, your beating heart, reproduction, self-healing. The six million forms of plants and animals are his. You and I exist because of him. He deserves the glory. And yet he condescended to die on a cross. The creator came down to die on a cross. And in the Greek mind, they thought, no, that's beneath God. A God would never do that. A God would demonstrate power and authority. That cross cannot be accurate, they might say. That doesn't fit with my philosophical worldview. That doesn't fit with my view of gods and goddesses and the pantheon of gods and goddesses. That doesn't fit with a God that's some sort of superhero. Why would they condescend to die in that manner? Why? That's the question. Why? Love. That's why. But see, in the Greek mind, this seemed ridiculous to them. And the idea of a death and resurrection, they, they wanted to push that aside as well. But Jesus, in the very history in which we are embedded, brothers and sisters, died that we might live. For it is written, verse 19, Paul's going to quote several Old Testament texts. I think six times he'll cite Old Testament uh, texts in the verses coming up through chapter 3. But notice he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, speaking of the wisdom of the world, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now, this is what God says. God says, I'm going to destroy human wisdom and the cleverness of the clever. I'm going to set it aside. That's what God says. He says, all the people who think they're so smart, the Johnny-come-latelys, they're going to be nothing when it's all said and done. They will simply be dismissed. Do you remember the story that Jesus told of the uh, ten virgins, five of them were wise, five of them were foolish, right? And the wise ones had oil for their lamps, the foolish did not. And so the, the, the herald came and said, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Time for the wedding. Well, the five foolish virgins said, give us some of your oil. And they said, no, we, we can't, you go buy some. And they went into the wedding feast. And then the five foolish showed up at the door and they said, let us in, let us in. And the host opens the door and says, depart from me, I don't know who you are. There's people who say that the oil represents the Holy Spirit in the story. Don't know for sure, but I'll tell you this. The difference between the wise and the foolish is simply this. The wise were ready for the wedding day. They were ready for the bridegroom. But the foolish were not. They had other plans, other priorities, other channels of wisdom, if you will. The quotation in verse 19 is from Isaiah 29, 14. 
in verse 19 from Isaiah 29, 14. You might want to write that down. Isaiah's teaching will have its ultimate fulfillment in the last days when all men's philosophies and objections to the gospel will be swept away. Christ will reign unopposed and unobstructed as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Revelation 17, 14. All of man's wisdom will become ashes. But the prophecy also has an immediate, a more immediate significance to the time of Isaiah and fulfillment, which serves to illustrate an, uh, the ultimate fulfillment. When Isaiah made the prophecy, Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, was planning to conquer Judah. The Lord told his prophet not to worry or fear because the king's plan would fail. But it would not fail because of the strength of Judah's army or their so-called alliance with Egypt or because of the strategy of King Hezekiah or his advisors. The wisdom of their wise men would perish. The discernment of their discerning men would be concealed, Isaiah 29, 14. Judah would be saved solely by God's power without any human help. In fact, later on in the book of Isaiah, one angel destroys 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's why in the Bible, the armies of Israel would often have worship leaders going before them, singing unto the Lord. The, the Lord would say, reduce your numbers. You have too many. Let's get it down to 300. What do you mean, Lord? They have thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Don't worry about it. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. This is biblical wisdom. The application to the cross, obvious. You can't save yourself. Jesus saves the application to the cross and the, the, the fit of the Old Testament quotation is this. The, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. And just like in the old times, he would ask Israel to trust him, even though it didn't make sense, even though the plan didn't seem to make sense. What do you mean march around the, the city for seven days, singing with the trumpets in front? <laughs> What do you mean, hallelujah, and the walls will come down? We've got to have a better plan. Maybe we can catapult some of our soldiers over the wall. Maybe we can breach the wall. That sounds pretty good. Maybe we can create a machine to win this war. What do you mean praise and worship is going to knock the walls down? Well, did the walls fall down? Yes, they did. There's even archaeological evidence that we've found that shows this area of the world and the walls destroyed. How, how could this be? This is so counter the wisdom of the world. Precisely. God says, you trust me and I'll do the work. Man, I am still trying to figure that one out. Anybody else? You see, the ultimate expression of trust is to trust somebody else to get me where I'd like to be, which is heaven. And Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, is coming to my Father's house except through me. You believe in God? Believe also in me. 
in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, if there was not a heaven, I would have told you. I'm going, but I'm coming again. This is biblical wisdom, centered, found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, what's the message? What's the point of the quotation? Precisely this. It's not your power. It's not your planning. It's not your persuasive words. It is the Lord and the Lord's power that will accomplish His work in His, in His wisdom. And what man is asked to do is to trust God. Believe. And that may be one of our biggest challenges. Especially in the pressures of the culture. Especially when we're facing a professor mocking our Christianity. Especially when we're out on the street and we try to share the gospel and someone laughs in our face and we think, oh, here we go. Martin Lloyd-Jones has commented, he says, the whole drift towards modernism that has blighted the church and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. One writer says, because of his own philosophy, uh, it did not allow for the miraculous. The very influential German theologian Rudolf Boltmann, for example, decided to demythologize the Bible, to identify the supposed myths to, and to consider only what remained to be God's word. That is, he decided in advance what God's word could and could not be. He relied on his own wisdom to determine God's wisdom. In doing so, he tried to make God in his own human image. When man tries on his own to determine what God is like, what his will is, and what he can and cannot do, the creature merely creates an imaginary God, an idol in his own image, and to his own egotistic satisfaction. When human philosophy is in any way imposed upon God's revelation, revelation loses. You see that happening today? I'm spiritual, but my God does this and this. My God would never do that. Well, your God is a figment of your own imagination, my friend. You can make up a God or a goddess or whatever you want to call it and make it into your image or make it palatable to your mind to fit with the philosophical views of the day. But in the end, I ask you, will that God save you? You know, when Israel was embracing and imbibing the gods of the nations, God warned them. He said, look, I don't want you going after their gods. I don't want you to embrace their ways. They, they do this and they do that. And, it, and God says, it's detestable. It's abominable to me. But what did Israel do? Yeah, Israel was like, yeah, 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 we'll follow God. Sure, sure, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then what did they do? Even Solomon, to appease his hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wives, <laughs> went up to the high places and made uh, abominable images to false gods. And God was displeased with Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, saved Jesus himself. Which shows you, it goes to show you, that anybody, no matter how wise they may be, how uh, grounded in Scripture they may be, can be captivated by worldly wisdom. John MacArthur says, the reason men love complex, elaborate philosophies and religion, religions is because it appeals to human ego. They offer 
the challenge of understanding and doing something complex and difficult. For the same reason some men scoff at the gospel. It calls on them to do nothing. It allows them to do nothing but accept in simple faith what God has done. The cross crushes man's sin and crushes man's pride. It also offers deliverance from sin and deliverance from pride. And so the question becomes, what are we going to do with it? Skip ahead for a second to 1 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no man, 1 Corinthians 3.18, deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, here's another of those citations, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Or as Romans 12, 16 puts it, don't be wise in your own estimation. <laughs> Man, I've become wise, you tell your friends. Woo! You won't believe these classes. I, I, I read a book. I read a book. You, oh, you read a book? You, you haven't been known to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I read a book. I'm, I'm an expert now. Right? Where is the wise man? 1 Corinthians 1.20. Do you, do, you do you ever watch a news program for about 20 minutes and then cry out these words? <laughs> Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Three categories. Four questions. You have the wise men, the scribe, the debater, all perceived as experts. Paul hammers home the point with four rhetorical questions. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? In the year 1870, the Methodists in Indiana were having an annual conference. At one point, the president of the college where they were meeting said, I think we live in a very exciting age. The presiding bishop said, well, what do you see? The college president responded, I believe we are coming into a time of great inventions. I believe, for example, that men will fly through the air like birds. The bishop said, this is heresy. The Bible says that flight is reserved for the angels. We will not have such talk here. After the conference, the bishop, whose name was Wright, <laughs> went home to his two small sons, Wilbur and Oroville. They also made popcorn later. And, and you know what they did with their father's vision, the Wright brothers. You see, sometimes what we mock is more real than we think. So the question, where are all the people with the answers? Where's the smart people? Has not God shown the wisdom of this world to be actually foolish? How much more time and evidence do we really need? Do we need another 20 years to figure it out? Another 30? Do we need another 100, another century to go by to figure out that man's wisdom isn't working? We better get back to God. What we need is a revival. Who were the wise men in the long ago? Not Herod, fearful lest he lose his throne. Not Pharisees, too proud to claim their own. Not priests and scribes who provi whose province was to know not money changers running to and fro, but three, and probably not three, who traveled wary and alone 
with with doubtless faith because before them shone the star that led them to manger low. Who are the wise men now when all is told? Not men of science, not the great and strong, not those who wear a kingly diadem, not those whose eager hands pile high the gold, but those amid the tumult and the throng who follow still the star of Bethlehem. You see, this is where wisdom is found. Hobart Maurer, one time professor at Harvard and Yale, one time president of the American Psychological Association, sadly committed suicide several years ago, apparently as a non-Christian. He said the following, For several decades, we psychologists have looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus. And we've acclaimed our liberation from sin as epic-making. But at length, we've discovered to be free in this sense, that is to be sick rather than to be sinful, is to court the danger of also becoming lost and becoming amoral, ethically neutral and free. We have cut the very roots of our being, lost our sense of selfhood and identity, and with the neurotics now find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living really mean? Isn't that the most fundamental question of all? What does living really mean? Do I have a purpose? Am I heading anywhere? Is there a savior? Is there a creator? Is there a destiny? Is there a hope? Well, since in the wisdom of God, 21, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Scholars call Paul's approach in verse 21 a polemical approach to counter the common cultural views. The wisdom of God could move from general revelation to special revelation because the final revelation of God is Jesus Christ. But he's also given general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they preach a message. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, God's invisible attributes... His eternal nature are clearly seen by what has been made so that man is without excuse. But professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made in the form of corruptible man or four-footed beast, etc., And then the declining scale in Romans 1 of what idolatry produces in a society is right there. So Paul says, look, it's the cross. Jesus came into the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's something you can write down. Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. 
Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. And that goes all the way from salvation to your family, to your values, to your moral life, everything. Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. And it starts with salvation. For Jews asked for signs, right? They wanted to see a sign. Show us a sign and we'll believe in you. How many signs did Jesus do on the planet? How many people did he heal? He raised people from the dead. And they wouldn't believe. Do you need just one, just one more sign? And Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And the Son of Man is coming out of the tomb just as Jonah came out of the fish. Yes, it's true. You want a sign? Here's what it is. Destroy my body on that cross and in three days I will raise it up again. You want evidence? You want wisdom? That's from Jesus. The Jews ask for signs. They want evidence. The Greeks search for wisdom. They, they, they want to hear the latest philosophy. The second century philosopher Celsus made a career out of attacking Christianity. He wrote, God is good and beautiful and happy. And if in that which is most beautiful and best, if then he descends to man... It involves change for him and change from good to bad, from beautiful to ugly, from happiness to unhappiness, from what is best to what is worse. God would never accept such a change. Ah, but I beg to differ because Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews took up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They knew what he was saying before Abraham ever existed. What do you mean? You're not even 50 And you have seen Abraham? Oh yeah, not only that. Before Abraham sprang into existence, I am the eternal God. (gasps) Oh yes, it's true. The philosophers can say what they want, but Jesus Christ said who he is. And so Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block. They trip over this. It's a scandal, literally. To Gentiles, it's foolishness. We preach Christ crucified. I was in the gym one day, and uh, there was a man sitting there. We were in the locker room, and he looked like he was down. And so I said, hey, what's going on? He said, I'm going through a divorce. It's something that I, I didn't want, but I'm going through it. And he said, I'm really down. And I said, well, you know, I deal with a lot of marriages. I'm a pastor. And he went, oh, you're a pastor. Let me tell you who I am. I'm a Ph.D. psychiatrist. I write articles against the church. I'm a confirmed atheist. Confirmed? Do you have to go through a ceremony to... (laughs) So I said, I've never met a confirmed atheist. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Where do you think all this came from? Where, Where do you think the design of your hands and your body and the meticulous design of the cosmos. Where did that come from? And he said, that's a hard one. That is a hard one. He said, that, there sure seems to be a designer behind all of this. I said, what do you write articles against? He said, I'm writing them against the Catholic Church because of you know, the abuse that happened in the past and, and so forth. 
I won't get into that right now, but, but I said, you know what? I said, I understand why you're angry, but you're not mad at God. You're mad at the church. And he bowed his head in the middle of this locker room and said, you're right. I'm mad at the church. And I went on to say, you know what? There is a God and he cares about you. And that's why I'm standing here right now. Now get this. At that moment, another pastor had been hanging around. I had no idea it was a pastor. He was coming from this side. I came from this side. A third pastor. No, just kidding. Second. And I said, and this guy started chiming in. I said, hey, confirmed atheist. God's got you surrounded. And he went, oh my goodness. What's happening to me? Here's what was happening. God loves him. And he wanted him to know that the wisdom of the cross is not nullified just because Christians blow it. And we do. See, we preach Christ crucified. It stumbles some. You could say, to some the message trips up, to others it trips them out. (laughs) But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, the entire world, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Have you heard him calling? Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth. I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Because the foolishness of God, 25, final verse, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Some of you look at this and go, what? The foolishness of God? What? The weakness of God? Here's what Paul's doing. Paul's basically speaking on their behalf. What you see as foolishness, what you see as weakness, is actually stronger than you. What unbelievers consider foolish and weakness, foolishness and weakness, which is the message of the cross in context, is actually stronger than men and their man-made belief structures and systems. Here's why. This is God's saving way. Thus, though they see it as foolish and weak, it is stronger than anything that they can come up with. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? You know, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they pierced him in his side? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when he rose from the grave? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Father, we thank you so much for this short but powerful section in 1 Corinthians. We thank you for your living word. We thank you, Jesus, that you came down to die on that awful cross. A first century death instrument that was seen only for criminals and the worst of the worst. A Roman citizen could not even be crucified. And yet the living Lord of the universe died 
on that cross. This is the wisdom of God. And Lord, the question ever before us as the church and maybe those who are not yet saved is this, do we believe it? Do we believe that the cross is your wisdom? The message of Christ, the resurrection is your wisdom. That's what you call us to. You say, you trust me because this is the way I'm saving you. Would you help us, Lord, never to be ashamed of that message, never to run away from it, because in it is the power of God, the power to save. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not met Jesus, or maybe you've been in the church for a long time, but you're not sure that you're even a Christian. You're not sure that you've put your full trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make sure. This is what it means to be wise. Run to him. Something like this. Lord Jesus, would you save me? Thank you that you died on that terrible cross for me. Prayed if it's you. Thank you that you took the nails. You took the wrath. You took the mocking. You took my shame at that cross. Thank you that through your shed blood, your sacrificial death, I'm saved. Thank you that you rose to defeat death. I repent of my sin and I put my trust in you. Pray it if it's you. If you need to rededicate your life right now, cry out to him. He is here and he loves you. He wants you to trust him with not only your life right now, but your eternal destiny. Father, give us faith. Give us hope in Jesus and let that hope and faith in what is ahead carry us even through the trying times of today. Minister to that saint who's going through a tough time, Lord. As we look at the, the cross, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It helps us to run this race with endurance. So help that saint who needs more endurance today, more faith. May your Holy Spirit be moving in this room, Lord drawing people to yourself, drawing people to hope. May you be glorified as we continue on as a fellowship to glorify you in the way we do the ministry of the church. Help us in the areas that we're weak and frail. Help us with our own faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.